Hi everyone, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and I'm back from my work trip to Alaska, which turned out to be more sightseeing than work, but that's fine. I'm not a big traveler or vacation taker, but it was nice to see an area of the world that I had never seen before. But who cares about Alaska? You guys don't want to hear about my trip up north. It's great to be back. And it's great to work on another episode of the show. And to show you all how happy I am, I've got a little surprise for everyone. But before we get to that, I got another email. It really is my favorite part of doing this podcast, hearing from you listeners. Today's email comes from Nathaniel Merrill. And Nathaniel says, Mr. Motes. First off, you can just call me Aaron Nathaniel. That's fine, but I really appreciate it. Mr. Motes. I cannot begin to tell you how much I enjoy your podcast. I've consumed your entire backlog in two days, and I'm loving it. I wanted to bring up the topic of Gray Jedi. I specifically want to talk about Force users that use both dark and light sides of the Force. I have a concept of the Force in my head that there are not two sides of the Force, but there is in fact only one Force. I think the way you use it and the motivations and emotions behind your use of it can affect you and those around you physically and in the Force. I would love to see the Sith and Jedi ultimately become one discipline of Grey Jedi and find out that this middle way, as the Bendu likes to call it, was the true way to bring about balance to the Force and the galaxy. Do you think there is a middle way? Are there two sides of the Force? Do you think legends or canon show this perspective more or better? Well, thank you so much for the email, Nathaniel. I really appreciate you taking the time to reach out. And before I get into answering your question, let me just say I am touched that you seem to like this podcast as much as you do. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. So, Grey Jedi. It's a topic that's probably one of the two or three biggest ones up for debate within the Star Wars community when you're talking about in-universe issues. I'm not talking about the whole, is canon better than Legends, or has Disney ruined Star Wars, or any of that crap. I'm just talking about in-universe issues. Grey Jedi, probably one of the biggest topics for conversation. I agree with you that I think about the Force as being one thing. As Yoda says in The Empire Strikes Back, the Force is an energy field that surrounds and binds everything created by life itself. In my opinion, it's the way you use it that determines the light and dark aspects of it. Now, when I was younger, my headcanon was that gray Jedi should exist, that there should be beings that can utilize both aspects of the Force. But, my opinion on Grey Jedi has changed, and it changed after hearing George Lucas explaining how he conceived of the Force. I know George is has been a little inconsistent with some of the stuff in the Star Wars saga, but he's been really consistent about how he conceived about the Force. And the best video of George explaining this is probably the one of Lucas speaking to the Clone Wars writer's room back in 2006 or seven. 
It's about a five-minute video. You can find it on YouTube if you haven't seen it. In short, George says that the light and dark sides of the force represent selfless versus selfish. And once you start thinking and acting in a selfish way, you need to continue that in order to achieve those same feelings. Meaning, once you start using the dark side, you can't just pick and choose when you want to use it. You either have to stop using it completely, or it's kind of like a psychological drug. You need more of it, more of it, more of it. Like Yoda says in Return of the Jedi, once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. Now, Lucasfilm's Matt Martin answered a similar question to yours on Twitter, saying, quote, As George says, the dark side corrupts, so one couldn't stay in the middle for very long. The EU is not a great example of proper usage of the Force. And Nathaniel, as for your question about the Bendu from Rebels, Pablo Hidalgo said this on Twitter, quote, We only have Bendu's word on that. Remember, if a fictional character thinks something, it doesn't necessarily mean they're correct. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, Nathaniel, and tell you I know exactly what Pablo is trying to say. He can sometimes be a little cryptic. But what I remember Bendu saying on Rebels is that it was the one in the middle. But Lucas has always said that the dark side of the Force is what puts the Force out of balance. So, I infer that that means the Bendu is ultimately a light side being regardless of what the Bendu believes. Now lastly, as to your question about whether the Force is shown better in canon or legends, uh, this is going to hurt a little bit. As much as I love the Legends novels, and yes, I still prefer many of the books in Legends than in canon, even though there are some excellent canon novels. In fact, when I think of my absolute favorite novels in Star Wars, I would say there's two canon novels that I like more than any Legends novels. However, I do prefer Legends overall. I think there are more strong novels in Legends than canon. But, I believe the Force is much more consistent in canon, and it's the way Lucas conceived of it. There are times in Legends where the Force is used like a video game power-up, especially the Legends stories that were released prior to the prequel movies coming out. And as to whether Legends allowed for the existence of Grey Jedi, Luke Skywalker himself addressed this issue with his son in the book Fate of the Jedi, Omen. Luke said, quote, For a Jedi, there is no place for a rainbow force. There is no room for compromise. We walk the path of the light side, or we fall into darkness. There is no gray area, unquote. Thank you for the email, Nathaniel. I hope I answered all your questions. If anyone else would like to be like Nathaniel and would like to ask a question or leave a comment, feel free to email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. Now it's time for today's book discussion, MedStar 1 Battle Surgeons. But before I start, I told you I had a surprise. My flights to Alaska were about seven hours both ways. And that gave me plenty of time to read the entire second book in the series, MedStar 2, Jedi Healer. So let's do them both. It's the MedStar duology, Battle Surgeons and Jedi Healer, by Michael Reeves and Steve Perry. Grab a drink, 
let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. The MedStar duology follows the story of the plucky characters working at Rimsu 7 on the planet Drongar, a swampy, humid jungle planet that's home to a rare plant called Bota. Bota can be used many different ways depending on the species. For many, including humans, it can be used medically on about the same level as Bacta. Now, the fighting on Drongar is fierce, with both Republic and Separatist forces suffering heavy casualties. Rimsu 7 is one of several mobile Republic medical facilities where surgeons Joss Vondar, Zan Yant, and head nurse Tolk Latren treat the wounded. The Jedi send Padawan Barris Afi to the Rimsu to assist the staff using her Jedi healing techniques. They're joined by Celestin war correspondent Den Durr and protocol droid I-5YQ. Republic forces are led by Admiral Tarnese Blade, a Sakaian who has grown resentful of the Republic over what he considers an insulting post on a MedStar ship over a backwater planet. Admiral Blade sets up a deal with a hut named Filba, the quartermaster at Rimsu 7, and a Black Sun operative. Filba is in charge of transporting the Bota back to Coruscant, but of course, he filters some of the Bota back to Black Sun. Blade knows about the deal, but instead of court-martialing Filba and bringing him up on charges, Blade has Filba skim some of the Bota off the Black Sun shipments that Blade plans to store until after the delicate plant mutates, then sell it himself. Wisecracking surgeons, alcoholics, gangsters, a murderer, a reporter, a spy, and a Jedi Padawan. It really is the Star Wars version of M.A.S.H. for all of you that are familiar with the Robert Altman film or the Larry Gelbart sitcom. The story begins with Joss and Zan fixing up wounded clones and cursing the war. Joss flirts with head nurse Tolk Latren while Zan plays classical music. Barris Afi is sent to the Rimsu to help out using her Jedi healing techniques to calm the injured or help with post-op recovery. It's her Jedi trial. If her master, Luminara Induli, and the rest of the Jedi Council deem her time on Drongar successful, Barris will be elevated to Jedi Knight. But soon after Barris arrives, her attention is pulled elsewhere. She senses something sinister going on in the Rimsu. Two somethings, actually. First, at the army garrison near the camp, there's a new arrival. A human mercenary named Fao G, a master of Terras Kasi and other hand-to-hand combat techniques. G is there to help train the troops, because it's all close-quarter fighting in the rainy jungles of Drungar. However, Barris can sense that G has an ulterior motive. He's not a good man. He's evil. G joined the Republic military so he could kill people without getting into trouble. And the mercenaries the Separatists employ on Drungar offer him that opportunity. Barris warns G about the sadistic motives she can sense in him and that she'll be watching. The second and more sinister feeling Barris can sense is someone in the camp working against the Republic. A spy. And it doesn't take long before the spy acts, sabotaging one of the Bota shipments off the planet, planting a bomb on a transport. The explosion kills two troops and destroys millions of dollars worth of Bota. An official Republic investigation determines the explosion is a tragic accident, but Barris isn't convinced. She senses something sinister behind the explosion and starts an investigation of her own. But the fighting always continues, and it's taking its toll on the personnel. 
Joss meets regularly with camp psychiatrist Clo Merritt, an Equani male with empath abilities. Joss tells Clo about his attraction to Nurse Tolk, a Lordian who shares Joss's feelings. But Joss is conflicted. He comes from a Corellian family that adheres to the old ways. He can only marry another Corellian or he's banished from the family, never to speak to them again and losing his inheritance. When Clo asks Joss what he believes, the surgeon says there's no denying a physical attraction to talk. But he wonders if his feelings for the Lordian are real or if they're a product of the stressful situation that they're under. He also loves his family back on Corellia and doesn't want to lose contact with them. Chloe's advice is for Joss to explore his feelings, spend time with Tolk, date her, ask her what she wants from any relationship with him. They don't have to make any long-term decisions at the Rimsu. Meanwhile, as Den Durr reports on what is going on at the front lines, the reporter begins investigating Philba the Hutt. The Celestin thinks something about the explosion on the transport smells fishy, and he begins investigating the Bota shipments heading off-world. Bota is a delicate plant. It decays quickly after it's picked. To prepare it for shipping to Coruscant, the Bota is encased in carbonite. But Dan believes more carbonite is being shipped than the amount of Bota that Philba is filing in his reports to his Republic superiors. And of course, Dan is right. Because Philba is sending a portion of the Bota to Black Sun, and also skimming a bit for Admiral Blade. As Dan investigates the explosion, Black Sun sends an operative to speak to Blade. The Admiral turns the tables on the operative, killing him and disposing of his body. This, of course, speeds up Blade's timetable to take his share of the Bota and flee the Republic. And he needs to tie up some loose ends, the first being Philba. Blade poisons the hut in the back of the Rimsu's warehouse, but in front of a hidden camera that Den had placed in the warehouse to gather evidence for his story. Blade discovers the camera and knows he's been caught. Now he needs to find the camera's owner, and smuggle out his portion of the Bota before Black Sun sends another operative to investigate the disappearance of the first. But of course, Blade underestimates Black Sun, as the criminal organization sends an assassin, an Adij named Caird, who moves throughout the Rimsu using a number of disguises. Caird learns that Blade killed the first Black Sun operative and Philba. He corners the Admiral in his office and murders him. Meanwhile, the fighting continues in the jungles around the Rimsu, and the surgeons continue to fix up the wounded. In one shipment, the Rimsu receives a number of separatist mercenaries. They tell the surgeons and Barris about what happened to them, that they were lured into an ambush and attacked by a lone man. But the man didn't act like a soldier. He was merciless, killing many of their comrades for fun. Barris knows the mercenaries are talking about Fao Ji and rushes to confront him. When she does, G challenges Barris to a fight, but she refuses. G returns to the jungle to hunt more separatists. Barris follows and stops him from murdering indiscriminately. G is wounded, and Barris uses her Jedi healing techniques to save his life. It's incredibly embarrassing to G, who heads back off into the jungle. Later, he records himself ambushing another platoon of mercenaries, killing them all by using himself as a bomb and blowing himself up. Battle Surgeons ends with the fighting moving dangerously close to the Rimsu. The camp bugs out, but not before the spy slows down the evacuation. In the turmoil, Zan, Joss's best friend and fellow surgeon, is killed. Zan's death plunges Joss into a deep depression. 
But eventually, the Rim Sioux relocates about 20 kilometers away from the fighting and safely behind Republic lines. Jedi Healer begins about a week after Battle Surgeons ends, and there's a new surgeon in the Rim Sioux, a young genius named Cornell Uli Davini. Uli is a crack surgeon, but he's never been involved with the types of procedures that take place behind the front lines. Amputating limbs, replacing organs, digging out shrapnel, and sewing up wounds under fire. Uli is welcomed into the small group and quickly develops a crush on Barris Afi. The Padawan finds the young surgeon attractive as well, but she rejects his affections, deciding to continue following the tenets of the Jedi Order. Now the MedStar ship that orbits Drungar is on high alert. Their admiral has been killed, and a new admiral has been assigned. The new admiral is Joss's uncle, the only member of the Vondar family that married an exter, a person from outside the Corellian system. His uncle was banished from the family for his decision and had no communication with his home in over 30 years. The admiral orders talk up to the MedStar to talk about Joss and her and about the decision he's going to need to make about the relationship. Soon after her arrival on the MedStar, there's an explosion in one of the hangar bays. Talk and Joss's uncle are unharmed, but more than 20 crew members are killed in the blast. An investigation finds the remains of a bomb. It's sabotage. The spy has struck again. Meanwhile, Joss becomes more and more disillusioned with the war and working on the wounded clones. In his frustration, he starts secretly using the Bota on the clones. It works miraculously and Barris decides to use it on a post-op patient who is suffering. However, the injector slips from her hand, and she accidentally injects herself. The effects are amazing. The Botox gives Barris seemingly unlimited access to the Force, and to power. Barris knows she can use that power to not only stop the fighting here on Drungar, but to bring an end to the war itself. The power is tempting, and Barris is tempted. But she hears the voice of her master, Luminara, telling her not to be seduced by the power. It's a lie. Finally, Barris does turn away, and awakes as if coming out of a trance, sweating and exhausted. Joss continues to use his secret stash of Bota on healing patients. But something is changing. It's not as effective as it was weeks ago. It turns out the Bota plant is mutating, becoming less and less potent. Soon, it'll be nothing more than a useless weed. The spy learns what is happening to the Bota and informs his Separatist handlers. This leads the Separatists to launch a huge offensive to try and gather as much of the remaining effective Bota as they can before the full mutation. As the fighting commences, the Rimsu begins preparing to bug out yet again. As the camp packs up, Barris realizes something. She confronts Nurse Tolk and looks into her mind. Joss intervenes, demanding to know what Barris is doing. Barris tells him she's looking for the spy in the camp responsible for the bombing of the MedStar and the Bota transport earlier. But it's not Tolk, Barris says. Her mind is clear. Then it dawns on everyone. There were two members of the camp that had traveled up to the MedStar before the bombing. Nurse Tolk and Chloe Merritt, the camp psychiatrist. Josh takes a weapon off of one of the wounded clones and rushes to Chloe's bunk. He finds the Aquani packing up. When Josh tells Chloe he knows that the Aquani is a Separatist spy, Chloe admits it. The Republic destroyed his planet at the beginning of the war, testing a new weapon, accidentally creating a solar flare that reached out so far in the Aquanist system 
that it roasted the planet. Klo was one of less than a thousand Ikwani who was off-world when the disaster happened, and he vowed revenge against the Republic. Joss is stunned by Klo's tale, but says he cannot leave. The Ikwani must stand trial for being a spy. The standoff comes to an end when the Separatist offensive advances beyond the security shield surrounding the camp. In the confusion, Klo tries to flee, but Joss fires, killing him. The story ends after the end of the battle. The last of the effective Bota has been harvested by the Republic and Separatist forces. The rest has completely mutated. It's now useless. Joss, Tolk, Den, Uli, Barris, and I-5 say their goodbyes. Joss and Tolk are headed to Corellia to tell Joss's family that they're in love and plan to marry, regardless of tradition. Den and I-5 are headed to Coruscant. Barris is too, but she's heading back to the Jedi Temple, succeeding in her trial. Now, a full-fledged Jedi Knight. Time for a break. When we return, I'll talk about the pros and cons of these two books, The MedStar Duology by Michael Reeves and Steve Perry. I'm Aaron Motes. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from the Star Wars Legends line. But allow me to take a moment and recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Lords of the Sith tells the tale of Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader marooned on the planet Ryloth. The two must fight together against a Twi'lek army. But what's more dangerous to the two Sith Lords? The rebels or each other? Find out in Lords of the Sith by Paul S. Kemp. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends, the good ones and the bad ones. I'm Aaron Motes, and today I'm talking about the MedStar duology by Michael Reeves and Steve Perry, Battle Surgeons and Jedi Healer, starring everyone's fourth favorite Padawan from the Clone Wars era, Barris Afi. Now, when I said the MedStar duology was mash in Star Wars, I wasn't kidding. Even the authors have said that there are aspects of MASH that they used for these two books. In fact, Michael Reeves said that there were times where he was writing for Joss Vondar and could see Alan Alda's version of Hawkeye Pierce. As I've said before, I'm 43 years old. Now, the movie obviously came out before I was born. I was extremely young when the TV series was on. It ended when I turned five years old. However... I've seen both. I've seen the movie. I've seen the television show. I've seen every episode at least twice. Most episodes I've seen five or six times. As I'm reading these two books, I can pick out everything that's happening in the 4077th. Yes, there are aspects of Joss Vondar that are Hawkeye Pierce. His best friend, Zan Yant, is kind of a combination of Trapper and B.J. Honeycutt. Uli, who comes in later in the second book, is kind of an amalgam of B.J. and Charles Winchester, although a lot younger than both of those. The nurse that Joss falls in love with, Tolk, isn't so much Hot Lips Houlihan 
is kind of an amalgamation of all of the nurses at the 4077th. So part of me really, really enjoys these two books. And part of me thinks that it's just too much. It's just too similar. So I'm kind of at a war with myself over how I feel about these books. In the end, I'm choosing to look at what I liked. Because if you look at anything in literature, television, movies, whatever, you can find homages to anything that was created in the past. To those of you that have listened to all the episodes of this show, the Star Wars Legends Lounge, you'll remember me comparing the first book of the X-Wing series, Rogue Squadron, to Top Gun in space. And it really is. There are parts of that book that are a lot like Top Gun, if any of you guys have seen the movie. So I'm choosing to just focus on the parts of the similarities to MASH that I like. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, how about the story as a whole? I enjoy the story. I enjoy a lot of the aspects of Star Wars storytelling that does not focus on the main characters. Because let's face it, we get a ton of stories about the main characters. Luke, Leia, Han. Later in Legends, you know, the solo kids, Jason, Jaina. Early part of Legends, young Anakin, young Obi-Wan, Yoda. I like when we get a couple of these side stories from the point of view of other people that are affected by what is going on in the galaxy. And the Clone Wars, from what we know in the timeline, is the largest conflict ever in this galaxy. It's going to affect more people than just the Jedi, the Republic troops, and the Separatist forces. Here we see how it affects medical personnel that didn't sign up for this. They were drafted. And a Jedi character that, while we know who Beresofi is, she's a very minor character. Those of you that have seen the Clone Wars television series know what happens to Beresofi. In the canon timeline, Barris is a little bit younger than she is in the Legends timeline. I like to think maybe about five years. I get the gist in the Legends timeline that Barris is about 21, 22, somewhere around there at the time of this story. And in canon, Barris seems to me to be about 16, 17, maybe 18 years old at the time of the end of the Clone Wars television series when she's arrested. One of the things I like about this is in the Legends timeline, the events of the Clone Wars television show still happen. She's arrested for becoming disillusioned with the war, framing Ahsoka, and putting off the bomb in the Jedi Temple. But that's all we know about Barriss in the canon timeline. I like how we get this story about what else Barriss is interested in and where her talents lie. She's a healer. I don't think in canon we see much Jedi healing. In Legends, we get a decent amount of it. Not a whole lot. But we have Barisafi, who has talents in Jedi healing. Later in the timeline, at Luke's Academy, we have Silgal and her Padawan, 
they both are talented Jedi healers. I just think that this story enhances Barriss's character, and I like that. Now, since this episode of the podcast is lasting a little longer than normal, the last thing I'll say about these books is I think Reeves and Perry do an excellent job at interweaving storylines amongst the characters in their books. The last episode, I talked about Death Star and how that book is written a little differently than most Star Wars books, which is it focuses on 11 different characters and interweaves their storylines together to come out in the end in the same place. In these two books, the storylines aren't as unique to the characters as they are in Death Star. However, there is some separation, and then the storylines continually overlap each other, kind of like a weave. Barris has her story that overlaps with Joss. Joss's story overlaps with Den. Den's story then overlaps again with Barris's, which then her story overlaps with I-5, the protocol droid. And in the end, once again, they all come out in the same place. It's an interesting writing technique that these two authors employ. While I wouldn't say it's my favorite style, I wouldn't want all of my books to be structured this way. But every once in a while, like these three books, I find it really interesting. And I applaud them for the way they've structured these novels. As I said, this episode has run a little long, so let's wrap up. I'll get back on the regular schedule next week on Friday, September 10th. Now, originally, as you guys know, I was going to talk about Jedi Healer. But since we already discussed it today, I'm going to do something special next week. I won't be talking about a specific book or comic or video game or anything like that. But I want to answer the question, is Legends about to make a comeback? Join me next week to find out. Until then, if you'd like to get in contact with me, please email the show at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. Ask me a question, send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. Remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends.